I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, welcome to I Was There Too. I'm Matt Gorley. This is the show where I speak to people who are present in the great scenes of cinema history. And today, this is a personal coup for me. One of my favorite roles in one of my favorite movies. We're even partially revisiting a film I've already covered on this short run of this show. My guest is Jeanette Goldstein. For my money, she played one of the most memorable, badass, awesome characters in movie history. Vasquez from Aliens. On top of that, she's John Connor's foster mother in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, as well as sweet little Irish mommy in Titanic. This is really just a James Cameron supersode. Now, I have a great confession to make. This is the first interview that I was a little nervous for, and I actually think you can hear it in the interview, because I loved Aliens so much, and Vasquez was probably my favorite character, and uh, Jeanette Goldstein has played so many wonderful parts, and then couldn't be more charming, personable, smart, witty, fun. I think you'll find her as pleasant as I did. We're not going to even waste any more time because this is a corker of a show. And stick around after the interview when we take a um, long-standing controversy and put it to rest. All right, let's connect last episode's guest to this episode, Eileen Dietz from The Exorcist to Max von Sydow or Sydow dealer's choice, to never say never again with Sean Connery, always go through a Bond film when you can, to The Rock with Michael Bean, to Aliens with Jeanette Goldstein. Okay, that's it. Why make this difficult on ourselves? I don't think there's anything more to say. Let's do this. The film, Aliens, Terminator 2, and Titanic. The year, 1986, 1991, and 1997, the Rose. Private First Class Vasquez, Janelle Voigt, and Irish Mommy, the actor, Jeanette Goldstein. Jeanette Goldstein, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on, because 
You would never know this, but your character, Vasquez, and me, we have a, a shared history. Oh, yes. Yes. So <laughs> when I was in junior high when Aliens came out, and we used to play, my friends and I used to play Aliens all the time, and I always chose to be Vasquez because <laughs> it was the most amazing character. Of course. I was. I, I always say I was living every like 12-year-old boy's dream. You must and have Apparently, been. I was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to take it kind of from the beginning. We'll talk about Aliens for a bit. We'll talk about some of your other great camera roles, some of your other roles, and then we'll what you're doing now. But I read that when you went in for the part of Vasquez, you thought the movie was about aliens as in immigrant aliens. Is that true? Yeah, that that part is true. I did. (laughs) I was was living in England Uh and um, I had my British uh, residency card. It was called, you were called a resident alien. Instead of having a green card, you were a resident alien. And I was married to an English guy and... um, there's a whole kind of underground economy of people who marry citizens in order to get their resident alien card. Sure. And they had asked for um, only to see American or Canadian actors. So I it was called Aliens, and I thought, well, it's probably about that phenomenon. And is it true that you went in with heels and a skirt or something like that? I did. I went in, you know, it was a first meeting, uh-huh. and I didn't have an agent, so I had no idea what was going on. And so, yeah, no, I dressed up. I wore, you know, um, heels. I had, it was a pair of slacks, and actually, the lucky thing was it was an unusually really hot day. And so I had a sort of little silk sleeveless blouse on, uh-huh. which when she said, and I had and makeup and, you know, the whole thing, and when, you know, when Gail had mentioned about, oh, you know, it's about uh, Marines. And I, you know, thought, oh, shit, I'm so (laughs) dressed inappropriately, you know. Um, But then, you know, I made this little sort of muscle bicep kind of thing, you know, and she was like, ooh. Because were you doing some bodybuilding at the time? Yeah, I was. I was, um, I was, how many years out of, I was about two years out of drama school. Mm -hmm. I went to drama school in, in London. And I was uh, unemployed, or resting, as they say in England. It's so nice. You're just resting. Oh, resting, uh, yeah, that's or redundant the... when you're fired. Yeah, exactly. They have the, the most amazing euphemisms. It's over fantastic. There. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I was resting, <laughs> and I was, <laughs> yeah, sort of fitfully, and I was really, I was really, really frustrated, obviously, and I was like running and. Um, there was a gym. I lived in East London, and there was like an old-fashioned boxing gym, and, and uh, Mr. Britton trained there. So uh-huh. I went there, and oh I started God. lifting weights, which I used to do as a kid. I you know, was kind of a tomboy. And I just got really, really into it, that whole subculture of you know bodybuilding, and, I, and it was just fun. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Now, I also read that there was a background on yours and Drake's character, who mm-hmm. was the other smart gunner, right? Your, your pal, until he yeah. gets made short work of. In the, yeah. in sorry. The, I know. Sorry. Sorry, Drake. Mark. Yeah. So you guys were basically in a juvenile prison and you were, were recruited. Absolutely. So you weren't just regular kind of volunteers or draftees. You guys had uh, not, not much to lose to go out and fight some wars, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was the, the great description and context for both of our characters, that we were conscripts out of juvenile prison serving a life Sentence for murder. Uh-huh. And my, murder? I didn't know that. Well, that, why else would you be sitting? Uh, I mean, it's the future, but I, I assumed, you know, yeah. she was a, a gang and she obviously, you know, was involved in, uh, you know, some sort of murder. And yeah. so it was like either spend your time behind bars or spend your time, you know, with the Marines. Uh-huh. Wow. So she had nothing, you know, they had nothing to lose, which when you have nothing to lose, you become... The most badass character in the world. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that translates pretty well watching and it, I feel like my eyes... Go to you every time you're on screen. You have oh. this amazing gun. You have this amazing character. Your body armor is decorated with interesting graffiti. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Oh, uh, yeah. No, that was great. Um, 
James Cameron, he was really specific that we should all kind of find our characters and then, you know, personalize our costumes and because it's really bad sometimes you show up on a set and you've got this whole idea of your character and then the the art department has decided everything else right, for you right. and it was completely the opposite we got to put things on our uniforms our gun even our, our lockers were our lockers so all the, the you pictures that are in there and it, we brought them uh-huh so it was great and I mean, what was in your locker what were the decorations do you remember? Yeah, I absolutely do. Okay. I absolutely do. I have this um, – there's a picture of a really young girl who was a Sandinista, and um, her hair is cut really short, and she has her cross, like, in her mouth, and she's sitting there. I, I don't know where I, f- I found it in a magazine. And then I have this great picture um, from the Richard Avedon book, and it's um, – he's this carny guy. He's got this almost like a snake-like kind of um, – to me, that was my brother. It was Whoa. this wonderful, incredible photo. And so I've had both of those up in the... I'm going to have to try to track that. Yeah, it's that one. It's a scene where they're kind of loading up and they're all closing their lockers. I'm not sure. You could see it in a still. There's a still of me and you can see the locker. I'm not, you know. Okay. Obviously, somebody got it from a screen drive. How did you approach the character of Vasquez? Did you do a lot of kind of character studying or just kind I, of... You know, I did. I was living, like I said, I was living in London. I'd gone to I'd gone to drama school in New York and then I got married and, and moved over to, to England. And um, I'd been there a few years or a couple of years. I can't remember. And, um, but, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. not in the barrio. But, what um, part did you grow up in? I grew up in Beverly Hills. Oh, wow. I grew up in Whittier, not too far from oh, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, the Beverly Hills and the barrio. Not yeah, close. absolutely. It was the slums. It was slums of Beverly Hills, but, <laughs> but still that doesn't. This is also a testament to your acting because you uh, are not a Latina, right? No. Yeah. And you've played these such diverse roles. And I think everybody knows your roles, but they might not always know it's the same person that plays those roles. And to me, that's the best kind of actor because oh, you're, you're just disappearing inside the characters. Anyway, I cut you off. Continue, please. What was I saying? Oh, about uh, Vasquez? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I I became an actress because I love becoming different people. Uh-huh. So I never wanted to play myself or right. even knew who that was, but you know, <laughs> still agree. trying to find who that is. Um, and, you know, I'm a real, I've got a really good ear for accents. My dad's from the Bronx. My mother's from the South. And, and wow. you know, I just, I don't know. I like pretending to be other people. So um, I just, I sort of, I knew that subculture of the, the gang, not personally, but living in Los Angeles. And I knew the accent and I knew the story behind it. And I did, you know, research on, you know, the idea of, Gang, what the gang offers to um, a young boy or girl, uh-huh. and the same thing. How there's the parallels of the army, yeah, the same idea yeah, and protecting in your family, and what that means, you know, in a positive way. You right. know, we know what it means in a negative, but so uh, yeah, that's the kind of research I did. And speaking of that, you guys had what two weeks or so together before shooting to kind of bond as a that as was a great. Unit. Yeah. yeah, that was that was an incredible luxury. I mean, I was already in that kind of shape when they found me. Like I said, I'd been training for a year, incredibly or almost two years, but a year I was really like wanting to do this the bodybuilding and you know the dieting and the lifting and and so they just the coincidence I was in the best shape I had ever been in my entire <laughs> life. And I have never ever been like that before. Um, and, you know, so that people say, oh, you know, how did you get in that kind of shape? That was really hard. So, um, but he gave us two weeks, which is an incredible luxury to meet each other, um, small arms. And we also worked on like tactical urban warfare because two of the um, stunt men, um, Trevor Sutton and Tip, who, who 
uh, passed away in an oh. accident. But they, these were stuntmen, but the, stuntmen, but they also had been in the um, SAS. Oh wow! And in Northern Ireland, uh-huh. so they would oh teach God. us how to do sort of approaching a building, and and because that was what it was, it was like urban yeah. warfare. Yeah. Now speaking of tactical weapons, you had to use a gun that had never really been used before. It's a heavy machine gun on a Steadicam mount, right? Right. A right. Smart gun. Well, it was a real gun. Yeah. But it it was put on a Steadicam mount. So yeah, it was a combination of the Steadicam and the gun, and it was yeah, it was really difficult. Right. I mean. I, one thing just to hold that thing and carry it and support its weight, but you had to maneuver around corners and through tight spaces with that thing. How was that? It was really cool. I mean, you could see it kind of float in a beautiful way. Yeah. And um, the stance, sometimes people would say, oh, my God, the stance you had, it was like a flamenco dancer. And you're leaned, you That's leaned not a crazy back. And, and I was like, well, yeah, I leaned back because <laughs> otherwise you'd be thrown <laughs> forward. I mean, the gun, the rig tells you how you have to be. Do but you it's, remember how much it weighed? You know, I think I, it was very heavy. I think they said it was like 75 to 90 pounds. It was, it was around there and then attached to the, the rig, which takes it off. But we were strapped in. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, my, you know, every Steadicam operator, and there's not that many of them, shout out to my girl, <laughs> my female Steadicam operators. Um, you, you know, they make your rig to fit you, your height and everything. And they... Um, had one pre-made for the actress who they assumed would be at least five foot eight, yeah. five foot nine. And I'm barely five foot two. Oh, wow. So it had to be cut down. So it wasn't the greatest fitting uh-huh. rig. So so on the external part of your character, you actually had some extensive makeup, right? You oh, were yeah. wearing contacts. I just assumed you, everybody, I think, assumed you were Hispanic in that movie. It's incredible. Well, I have light skin and, f- and dark freckles. Uh-huh. I kind of look black Irish in a way, yeah. in, in a weird way. And I have um, kind of gray eyes. So when, apparently, I didn't know this, if you connect all my freckles, <laughs> I, I, I look, I don't know. And then, but the eyes seemed incredibly <laughs> I blue. I see what you're saying. If you That's fill what in they, the spaces They fill in the spaces the... between the freckles. <laughs> I have no idea, so. And what was some of the graffiti that you put on the armor? You had a poem, a line oh, yeah, from a line poem, from a poem. Right? Yeah, it was a line from, it was a, a book of Chicana poetry, and I can't remember her name. She was a poet, and one of the poems it talked it, that was the title of the poem was El Riesgo Siempre Vive, uh-huh. and, that, and means- that means the risk is always there. There's uh-huh. always the risk. The risk never dies. You know, the risk is always there, and it it was about gang life and you know life in the barrio, and and I thought that was really interesting, and so that was part of my research. Uh-huh. So I talked to, as you know, Rico Ross a lot about mm-hmm. aliens, and we covered a lot of the the broader strokes. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about how you got into acting in the first place. You did a lot of theater and classical works. Yeah. No, I um, I grew like I said, I grew up in Beverly Hills, and uh-huh. I you know the slums of Beverly Hills is <laughs> is this actually the story she wrote? I mean, you know, you grow up in those apartments. My dad worked for the VA, you uh-huh. know, and so we kind of. Me and my brother and my folks, we moved from apartment to apartment to go to the school system. And they had this great drama department where all the outsider, the sort of freaks, would be a part of. Was this a specific school, Beverly Hills High? Beverly Hills High. Okay, great. Yeah, Yeah, Beverly Hills is a small city, and it has one high school and four grade schools. So that's the one high school. And it's kind of like a private school. It's Mm -hmm. got great classes, and it's got this amazing um, drama department. And, um, you know, so I completely, you know, when I found out that you could do it as a job— 
you know, my, my parents aren't actors. Nobody in my family is. I uh-huh. thought that was great. So I was there. I went to um, ACT, the American Conservatory yeah. Theater, when I was like 16. Wow, that was quick. Oh, no, no. I went, it was a summer program. Okay, I'm sorry. You. But yeah, just for the summer. And uh, really got interested in repertory theater because you could play lots of different characters and Shakespeare. And my folks would always take me, you know, to plays and, and yeah. things like that. I and, have to ask you because I'm a big uh-huh. Shakespeare enthusiast. Oh, yeah. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare role? Oh my god! Oh my god! That you, either that you oh, that played I've or that you, you'd play- like to play. Yeah. Oh, that I, oh my god! Yeah, I'm I'm definitely approaching my queen, <laughs> my queen stage. <laughs> I know. I I look at the gray in my beard and think, well, there goes Hamlet. Oh yeah. Actually, it's funny. My husband was saying they should do King Lear, do a female version you of should, King that would Lear. Be amazing. It's been definitely been done yeah, before. Yeah. I love Shakespeare. And so, did you do any Shakespeare over in London? I did. I'm trying to think. Did I do any in London? That's so funny. No, I did it in uh, the States. In London, it was it was strange. I always wanted to go to London and be an actor and, you know, work for the RSC. And what I found is that as an American, they would force you to do Americans. Ah, that makes it's like, sense. It's like, no, you can't even do Chekhov because <laughs> Chekhov, these people have English accents somehow yeah, or, you yeah. know, they're not, you know, so yeah. it was this weird kind of American ghetto <laughs> That I was like, you know, maybe I should go back to the States where I can actually do all kind of characters and not yeah. just Americans. Yeah, it's like over here you hear, you know, Asian actors are typecast into playing stereotypical mm-hmm. Asians all the time. And I imagine over there you're just always the American and they don't give yeah. you a chance. Well, you know, I had actually I, – I had a one-person show that I toured when I left. And it was um, it was based on Shylock's daughter, Jessica, oh. Oh. called Jessica's Monkey. <laughs> People don't remember that he has his daughter. yeah. And I was like, ooh, something's going to happen to her. It's really interesting. She converts. She betrays her father. She converts to Christianity. Oh, wow. She runs away. She buys this monk. You know, she's – and I'm like, ooh, what's going to happen at the end? You know, what's she, she going to speak? Because I don't – I never saw it either. It was one of those holes in my – and it just – she says nothing. She disappears. And I was like, that's really bizarre. And is there something behind why she buys a monkey? Is that – Interesting, is it isn't lost it? Lost to time? Is that what your show's about? Yeah. Oh. It's, it's – uh, yeah, it's a – about the one of the you know because I looked at the definition of her it says the amoral is like you know a minor character the amoral daughter of Shylock blah 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 and actually one of my uh, professors at drama school we were doing this it was like a competition on uh, one person shows you would create a character based on a minor character uh-huh. and I asked her and I I said you know I'm thinking of this there's not much history on her not much background but she fascinates me. And uh, she said, you know, uh, Jonathan Miller, who's a famous uh, director and uh-huh. English director, and he actually happens to be Jewish, said, you know, he did a production of uh, Shylock once. And at the very end, everybody leaves. They go off and they go, oh, let's have a party. And they leave. Everything's happy. Everything's tied up. And Shylock is, you know, defeated, whatever, yeah. embarrassed. And he, she said that he left Jessica on stage by herself in a spotlight. And it just focuses on her as it slowly goes down. And she's, mm. you know, she said, okay, go ahead, write the show. Any plans for a revival? Ah. Well, again, <laughs> a little old. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, so you end up in Aliens, and then you kind of become James Cameron's go-to girl. I almost want to call you his muse. You're in three of his films, mm-hmm. right? So how did that happen that uh, he just, uh, the job you did must have made a real impression on him, huh? Well, you know, he's he's an amazing um Amazing person. I mean, he's incredibly talented. He knows everybody's job. You know, he started off as a, you know, he was a truck driver and a geek kid and from a small town in Canada and, you know, came up through the ranks and he's incredibly loyal. And he, 
if you look at his films, he, there's reoccurring people sure. in all, you know, Bill Paxton was punk number two, <laughs> wasn't he? In um, Term- I think was, that was his name in, 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 the, in first the first Terminator. Terminator. Yeah, all when the way through Ar- True Lies. And he's, yeah, he shows and up And he was, he wasn't even, he was a painter on the set. This was, you know, during, in Corman, the Corman yeah. um, shop. So, and, um, you know, he gave me my first uh, film job. I mean, completely. I mean, I'd never worked on camera or anything, uh-huh. and it was a huge risk for him to take me on. And he had to sort of fight the studio to say, "Oh yeah, no." That really? when I when I got the so when I went into audition for Aliens, you know, they gave me the lines um, for Vasquez uh-huh. and said, "Okay, this is we want you to read. Um, you're not auditioning for this role. This is one that's being cast over. You know." In uh, the states, we're just looking for the smaller characters, either the you know the pilot or the the tech lab techs yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But um, they don't have that many lines, so we're going to have you read her. Don't worry about it. We just want to hear how you no read. Kidding. And so I got it, and I thought, I can't. How do you not read the, as the character in the scene? I mean, that's ridiculous. So I just read it like her. I just thought, and then that's when they started like giving <laughs> me. Actually, they gave me Hudson's lines, Bill Paxton's lines to read. Uh-huh. Also, he used to, he had a, there was a big monologue that was cut out of the. Okay. Of the film, and I was thinking, am I okay? Am I reading for a guy? And they're like, no, we just want to see you read, you know. So I kept, and then they had me in, and then they had me crawling around um, on the floor with Jim and and improvising, and I still wasn't. I was really confused, but that was fine. And they had me talk about Vasquez and and talk about how she was sort of the she was the foil of Hudson, but she yeah. was also they were the she was the inverse of him. Uh-huh. Everything that he blurted out, she kept under in control. Uh-huh. So. Um, the last audition I had, I was like, they were like, thanks, thank you so much. And I was getting ready to leave and take the train back to London, I, you know. And the casting director ran out and said, you know, uh, can you come back in? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And uh, he said, well, this is going to sound weird. We're going to give you the script. We want you in the movie. We have, before anybody gets you, we want you. So, like, so many people were, <laughs> were after me. Well, at that. they didn't know that. They didn't know that. Let's yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. that's right. Um, and, um, <laughs> But we don't know what role we want to give you. We just know that you're in the movie. Uh-huh. And so we'll call you in a couple of weeks. And, you know, they were like, and do you have an agent? And I was like, no. And they said, do you want to negotiate your, your job or do you want me to get you an agent? And I was like, yes, please. Please. Um, and so I was so excited because I was my first paying job and that I was going to have before I was, you know, 30, yeah. you know. And I was so excited. I was in a film. And then, but then, you know, two weeks later, I got the call with, the good news that he had gone back and was like, this is who I want. You know, she's never done anything, you know, and. Did you expect that it would be Vasquez or at this point? You're well, still it was either, thinking? it was either, it was either going to be Vasquez or um, one of the other, the like, other roles. Um, um, Corporal Farrow. Yeah, yeah, Corporal Farrow yeah. or, or Dietrich yes. or, or, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I had um, Dietrich all slated to go for this show and she just never picked up her phone. I'm worried about her. <laughs> oh, no. She lives in New Orleans. <laughs> oh, well, she's just probably out having some fun. Yeah. So working with Cameron on mm-hmm. three different films, did you find that he changed from film to film in any way? Or nope. was it really same? Not, not at all. I mean, that he would just call me. Sense. Yeah, he called, like, for, for Terminator. I mean, he was always joking after I, I came uh, I, I came to Hollywood when the, when the film opened, uh-huh. came back and, you know, had a lot of auditions and um, – you know, we used to talk about, you know, everyone would offer me, uh, you know, Mexican maids or uh-huh. Mexican. And I'd walk into a room and they would be like, oh, you're not Mexican. 
I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm an, an actor. actor. Yeah. And she was. <laughs> Wasn't she Mexican? Yes, she was. You know, and I had a lot of trouble and I had to, you, you know. You think casting people would be the first to know how the system works, but they almost seem to be I don't know if it was cast. Well, they didn't, know, they didn't know me because, I, like I said, I, I wasn't from Los Angeles and I was living, I'd been living overseas. So, um, and, you know, I had a, and I'd had a kid and we always joked. He said, oh, you're, you're such a great mom and, you know, and everything. So he gave me the role. He said, I gave you a mom role. Uh. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, okay, well, it's a mom who kills, you know, <laughs> but she's, she's a mom, you know. But then he did give me another mom role. That's right, yeah. You had, we'll talk about yeah. those in a second. How was it working with Sigourney Weaver? She just seemed like uh, an amazing woman. Yeah, uh, she was great. She was, um, she'd come off two films in a row and came, you know, she was, I remember she was exhausted and, um, you know, the, and she's in every single scene. And I mean, but both of us were, had to be there very, the very, Start of the sh- you know the day because I had to get all my makeup on and she was there and into the very end and it was, it was great. I mean she's so professional and just a really wonderful person. Is this true? I read that uh, when the Colonial Marines, when one of them would die, she had a parting gift for them. <laughs> really? Do you remember what that was? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one uh, benefit of dying on that set. And you last as long as any of the Marines do, right? I know. Other I know. than Hicks, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Or, yeah. And then you have your famous death scene with Gorman huddled up in the air vent. Anything you remember about that? Yeah, no, that was a great way to great way to die. I mean, obviously the great death scene. You guys I, are holding the grenade together. Yeah, it was, oh, it was very romantic. One of my favorites. <laughs> one of my favorites. Most explosive actress in Hollywood. <laughs> I have blown up in. Three, three films. No, four. Four well, films. Yeah, you, four films. In the three Cameron films plus Lethal Weapon 2. I blew up, yes. You blow up, but you die in all of them. I do. I the van, uh, Near Dark, the uh-huh, yes. Catherine Bigelow's film. Yeah. yeah I, I ignite, ignite, <laughs> so and, ignite, and I explode, and explode. I explode. And then I was in... Um, Miracle Mile. Yeah, you know, with Steve, Anthony Edwards, right? And I, 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 I guess I I don't know if I escape, I get on I I'm not I think I blow up. I, I don't think I <laughs> You're the most combustible <laughs> in actress nuclear, in I am. Hollywood. Are you familiar with the, the kind of like trope that Sean Bean dies in every film he's in and there's a internet oh, video? But I think you might movie for movie have him beat. For exploding. Explosions. Well just dying in general. Just oh, I, your really? character's dying. We should really look into this. I die and I kill people. I used to yeah, kill people. Well yeah, you a kill lot. someone with a Weird saber hand right through a milk carton. Absolutely, yes. We can even talk about how do you think Janelle Voigt is the name of your mm-hmm. character in Terminator Two. We never see her die. We just see that she's now taken over by. Yeah, there was actually there was a, they were going to shoot um, her. Well, actually, it wasn't dying, but there was a, a tracking shot where they go into the apart. The camera moves into the apartment, uh-huh. and you sort of the bathroom is open, and you sort of see her in a bathtub with her arm hanging out. Oh my God. And they didn't have enough time to shoot it on that day. Um, and so it was like, okay, we'll do it. We'll pick it up later. We'll pick it up. And they never did. And it, Ugh. yeah. And it, but it actually, I think it, it definitely worked. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, that'll lead obviously. us into Terminator 2. We're going to take a quick break and okay. we'll come back and talk about that.
Okay, we're back with Jeanette Goldstein. Now, we're moving on to Terminator 2, where you play Janelle Voigt. Okay. I have to tell you something about this as well, because I remember seeing this movie when it came out and thinking, like, oh, yeah, the foster parents of John Connor, they just don't get him. They don't understand. So I watched <laughs> this again, and I'm kind of like, no, they're pretty decent people. And well. <laughs> he's a bit of a punk kid. Like, you're not mean foster parents. You might, Todd might be a little uh, lazy. Well, well, we're like, you know, we would joke, Xander and I would joke, uh, you know, in the, like, Janelle, hide the bong, hide the bong, you're the cops, you know? They were just like, oh, get out of my way. No, they were there. Living in Winnetka. Yeah, that's what that's deep the in the bad valley, right? side of Van Nuys. Yeah. Is that what it is? Winnetka? Yeah, and, and Van Nuys itself isn't really starting on the good <laughs> side. So, um, so you play this foster mother, this tragic, doomed foster mother, who's quickly sort of uh, assumed by the T-1000 mm-hmm. and uh, – how was it playing the two different types of Janelle? Oh, it was really uh, – the cool part was, okay, so Robert Patrick obviously got the role. Uh-huh. And, you know, so great. He was so – So good. Uh, oh, my God. It's so amazing. And he was like, okay, come over to my apartment and we're going to work. And I'm going to tell you how what how I envision the T-1000 and how I – you know, if you hear him talk, he talks about it. He's like a praying mantis because yes. he's got these ears that stick up, you know, right. Robert does. And yeah. how he, he hears, he sees with his ears. And so I, what I did is I looked at his gesturing and his sort of very – so it's a very subtle change in the body. Uh-huh. And it's noticeable, but you went to his apartment and oh, he yeah, let yeah. You, well, you use him as a character study. Well, of course. So, you know, you just get together, you yeah. know, a bunch of actors, you know. And so you have the scene where you <laughs> – Turn your arm into a sword and impale mm-hmm. your husband's head through the milk carton with well, a big sword. I'm on the phone. And <laughs> That's your right. In your defense. And he's, yeah. In your defense, yeah. They always talk to you when you're on the phone, right? <laughs> how was the process of the CG? Did you have any idea how revolutionary the CG was going to be at this point? Because I remember this no. being revolutionary. Yeah, none point. whatsoever. I mean, the actual scene, I mean, they had me, they did a, a, a model of my arm where I stuck it in, in goop, uh-huh, you know, yeah. and they made the thing and they like painted on all the little freckles and all that. And then they had this just kind of knife thing that you'd sort of build out of a, a kit that would went, went into Xander's mouth. This poor, poor thing. And it came out the back and it wasn't working. And oh, a really? bunch of guys were squatting next to me, you know, down, crouched with my fake arm in his mouth. And uh-huh. I mean, it was like the most kind of, you know, it was like a Corman kind of thing. And But then you had Dennis, who was the mastermind of this new... Is this Dennis Murin from ILM? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he he looks like a mad scientist, He does. Right? He does. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to and say so this. he's on set. He has this huge <laughs> brain. He has this yes. huge bald head. That reminds me of this, that Star Trek episode, the guys with the big brains. Oh, yes, yes, yes. My friend's father played one of those. Anyway, but he did. He looks like a mad scientist. And he would sit there and then... He'd explain, you know, what is going to happen because all I did was just kind of like move my eyes, move your eyes up, move your eyes down, move uh-huh. your eyes to, to the side, to right, to left, and thank you. That was the, you know, the extent of my acting, you know, yeah. what I saw yeah. and looked down. And then he'd explain, so what is going to be ha- – and I just thought, this, this man's insane. You know, he's <laughs> – I don't know what he's talking about. I have no idea. How long did you have to stand there just with your arm up like that? It was with, a long time. But, yeah. you know, I'm not the one that had that deep throat the night. <laughs> uh, poor Xander. Yes. should have brought I've him in I've killed him too. actually. Wait, I can't wait to joke because he kills, he's also killed and, is, and kills people on many 
many really? things. We were in one. You've killed him in another film? No, but he killed. He, where was where were we at? He he was he was a businessman. He said, "I'm finally get to wear a suit," but he's like ki- raping and killing nuns. You know what I mean? He goes, yeah, "But yeah. I'm wearing a suit, <laughs> so it's <laughs> so okay." To step up, yeah. <laughs> so, what was your reaction when this film came out? It must have been something. And also, you are in the end as well. When the Terminator oh, yeah. takes a big lava bath, you have to be writhing around. What was it like to shoot that scene? Oh, that was that was kind of gross. It was um, <laughs> well, it was it was an incredibly cold day, and we oh. were out in this um. I don't know, factory somewhere out, and uh-huh. um, they, it was a huge vat of baby oil. I would have thought that Gallons. that was done in studio and just put in. I had no idea you'd done that on yeah, set. I, wonder, wow. I guess because they, what it was, it was the last scene, the big, the big yeah. factory. So they were filming it within that factory, and so right. they just built the big vat there. Oh my god! So it was a huge vat of baby oil, but because they needed it to glisten or a, a, some sort of opacity, they had to dump. Boxes and boxes of powdered sugar into it. Oh, so yeah. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> so they I've had got real mixed feelings. Yeah, about I this. know it's good. So yeah, it was, it's kind of cool <laughs> and kind of gross and kinda, and then there was a guy in a wetsuit who was there, you know, in in case you were. You know, had some drowning <laughs> issues, uh-huh. but then Jim would get—he got in there too. Really? Oh yeah, because he was like, "I'm gonna." Everybody's acting like a pussy. I'm gonna get in there. You know, he's like, "What?" So he's like, gets in there too. So there's like these two guys in this vat, and I'm wearing, you know, the clothes, and you're you're going under, and then uh-huh. the wig, and then because they have to put a wig on you because you have to do another take. You can't have your hair. Yeah. And so, and then you know, I took the longest shower, <laughs> no, but I was very oh, moisturized. Yes, and sweet <laughs> for for yes for years. <laughs> <laughs> but Terminator, I swear, was like one of my favorite movies. Actually, there was a poster of Terminator on the wall the first time I went to meet Gail Ann Hurt for uh-huh. my very first meeting. And I walked in, and I was like, oh, my God, that movie was so – and I'd just seen it. That's so cool. I had no idea, you know. You, that you'd end up in it, yeah. Well, that, you know, yeah, or that they even had, had made it, you know. Oh, was, really? Oh. I was, Believe me, like I, I knew nothing when I went in there. I was yeah. – Sometimes it's better. You're not as nervous. It's amazing that you can say your first role in film is one of the most iconic action roles of the 80s, if not all time. That's really something. All right. Well, now moving on to Titanic. Titanic, yes. Yes, where you play Irish mommy. Mm -hmm. I'd make you cry. (laughs) Yes, it did. In fact, my girlfriend, it's one of her favorite movies, and we were watching it last night. And when you're putting the children to bed, this was the thing that my girlfriend said. How did she even do that? <laughs> Thinking like, how even play acting do you put two children to bed knowing it's their last That's time? really, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, the hard part for me, and, you know, I had at that point, I had two children. I mean, it was tr- was not crying. Uh-huh. I mean, holy crap, you know, how do you, how do you do that and not cry? Yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, but that's the, that's the deal. That's yeah. what it is in that scene. You don't think that this woman would have cried? Do you think she's being strong for her children? Well, and you that know, makes sense to me. Well, it's interesting because I had like my um, my oldest son, he was – when the big earthquake happened in – was it 1990? The, the Northridge one or the no, Whittier one? the Whittier. Wait, the, the most Northridge recent one. The one was 94. Uh, he was – so he was like three years old and he was in the bed with me. I was a single mom and he was – he had gotten in. And so when it happened, I mean, I grew up here and I was always told, you know, well, there's the ones and then there's that one that goes up and down. Yeah. And, then, and I'd right away just knew that's, this is it. And I grabbed him and I stood in a doorway with him and he was asleep. And I remember like wanting to, you know, scream. And my only thought was, no, because we're going to die. And I don't want him afraid when he dies. I just oh. want him to stay asleep. 
Now I'm going to cry. And, you know, that was the, <laughs> set, the same thing. You know, it was like all I wanted to do was scream, but I was like, no, you know what? He's let him stay asleep. You have to be strong for them. Yeah, and that was that same that same thing. It was that same. Yeah, this is Pablo. Of course, when it stopped, uh, this Pablo. (laughs) Pablo is the reason you're here today. He is apparently a listener and found me on Twitter and said, "My mom is uh, Vasquez from Aliens. Would you be interested?" And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Now Pablo actually is Mexican. (laughs) He is. He's yeah, Mexican and Jewish. Full circle. Yeah, I'm I'm a Mexican by insemination. Uh, I lived in Whittier when the big Whittier earthquake happened. And so I, of course, I was there for the Northridge one as well in Whittier. But oh, I have yeah. to say, I live so near the epicenter in the Whittier one that that one was the worst to me. And I just freaked out. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I didn't have any children that I had to protect. So my hat's off to you. Yeah. Um, so this film is, mm-hmm. you know, mythical in the stories about how long it took to shoot and all the right. over budget and that it was troubled and that sort of thing. How I, was your experience? I was that? not touched by that. Really? Yeah, no, it was. Um, and uh, lot, my scenes were very contained. And also my, my scenes were with children. So there's laws that protect oh, minors. Right. Yeah. And so they were and they were on nights at that point. So we had to be, uh, we had to film, we had to be the first shot up. And if we didn't finish it within the time where they had to go to bed, we had to come back the next day. So it was very. That's the way to work. Man. Yeah, that's the way they to work. always say don't work with animals and children, I, but I I'm thinking maybe, maybe I, not animals, but children. Right. And I didn't have to get wet. That yeah. was the best because I've been, I've acting while wet is the worst. Or in baby oil and sugar. Yeah, yeah. that's true. But, but no, it was, uh, it was very contained and I had the two kids and. Um, How long were you on the actual shoot? Well, I wasn't on it. I was the only reason I was. I think I was there two weeks, and that was only because you know when we, they couldn't get the shot, we had to wait. Uh-huh. And I had a newborn back at home, and so I sort of went back when I was off, and then came back. And and so. this is just off the coast of Baja, Mexico. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, it's just down in Rosarito. Rosarito. So it was, yeah. yeah, it was really close. So that's why I decided not to take the baby. And yeah. So and then you're in a scene at one point looking for your stay at room, and mm. Leo DiCaprio runs mm. by you. How was that? I have to ask. I, I, you know, my girlfriend included would never forgive me if I didn't ask. How was Leo? Oh, he's a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually. I was famous at my uh, my daughter's school and my son's school because oh, you know, they all wanted my autograph. But I knew it was because they now have an autograph from someone who actually knew Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. So that was there. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I read somewhere that you're in when. Kate Winslet's character, Rose, passes away, and she goes to this big staircase thing, and all of the people are in there. Are you in that big scene where everybody is kind of in her afterlife? Because my girlfriend, again, she said, I want to know if she's in Titanic heaven. No, (laughs) I'm not. No. Oh, well, the Titanic wiki has it wrong. Oh, really? Oh, God. You mean the internet is wrong? Can you believe it? Oh, my God. I don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was great. I mean, it was... um, the whole the story, the Tiernanog, the, the yeah. bedtime story, because in the script it just says she tells them a bedtime story as she puts them to sleep. You that was, came up with Tiernanog? No, no, no. I, I didn't come up with it. But there were lots of Irish actors on set. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like the only non-ethnicity um, that was the real ethnic, you know, ethnicity. Yeah. And um, Once they, again. They had, oh, yeah, once again. With, yeah. This time they gave me, actually, I got a little uh, coach, a vocal uh, oh, dialect really? coach. Oh, your dialect is which wonderful. Which was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah that was really and, fun. And your freckles are in full play. I know, I have freckles <laughs> and red hair. Oh, the red's not natural, though, of course. Oh. But, um, yeah. So, no, it was uh, the Irish uh, actors in there and the musicians, and they were like, you have got to tell this story. 
And they were like, you must. I mean, they were, because the whole thing is all the Irish that died down yeah, below. Yeah. And so they were the ones who told me the story and we cut it, we cut it, you know, back to a suitable length. And I, did, I so. looked up that story. It's a beautiful little story. Yeah. And very sad. Yeah, it yeah. really is. They weren't sure if they, I should tell them a story or sing them a song. And then they, they were the ones that came up with that. So oh, the musicians, cool. those actors who played the musicians. Yeah. yeah. You were also in Lethal Weapon 2. And did you work with Tony Carrero, one of the cops? Do you remember him? Yeah. He's a colleague of mine. We teach together at Long Beach City College. Oh, And my so God. he's one of the guys. One of the ethno cops, as yeah. we call ourselves. You, yeah. tell, you got your Italian, you That's got right. your Jew, That's you got right. your black, you got your Irish, you got your. <laughs> and he. he uh... You got your lady, you got your. <laughs> he's one of the only one of your gang that doesn't get killed when they're kind of going around killing all the cops. And I'm wondering, yeah. what's his deal? How come he got to survive? I have to talk to him about Ask that. Ask him. I think he got another. I think he got another gig because we. This is one of these excellent, excellent shoots where we got. You know, they have like they can drop and pick you up where they don't have to pay you. They can do that once, but then. Um, what do you mean? Oh, uh, with uh, SAG, you know, yeah. they pay you. You know, they pay you your weekly. Yeah. And if they the schedule changes, they can. It's called a drop. Oh, okay. And then they can pick you up without having to pay you within that time you're not working. But they can only do that once. Uh-huh. And they already did it. But I, th- I think Mel had something to do, and so they had to give us an a paid like you know, like six Just eight week. Yeah, hang yeah. out. Oh. So, but I think he had. You can ask him. I think he had another gig or a television show, and they got him out of. The contract, but maybe I'm lying. Oh, maybe. Maybe yeah. I'm well, lying. Well, he's slated to be a future guest on here and oh, talk good. about that role. Say um, hi. <laughs> I will. I, sur- I sure will. Dean. Dean Norris. Yeah, that's right. From Breaking Bad. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. It's a veritable who's who of buddy cops. Yeah. So you die on a diving board. You're mm-hmm. blown up once again. Blown up, yes. On a diving board. And I'm assuming that was a stunt person, or was that you that does she that? She amazing... was. Well, it was it was <laughs> me who steps onto the board. Fair enough. <laughs> six months pregnant. What? Really? I'm afraid. With Pablo? Yeah, this yes, with, with Pablo. Pablo's been Pablo in the movie. Pablo has in the movie. He's in Lethal Weapon too. We'll have him on the show as well. <laughs> Pablo Goldstein, yes. He's his and I because they had done this big drop and pickup, I wasn't telling the director I was had was pregnant because I was like I'll be in I'll be out no yeah. problem bathing suit scenes happening here and then they rearranged and oh, then I had to you know tell it was Richard Donner and his first question was does she know who the father is wardrobe <laughs> <laughs> goes of course she knows who the father is she's just asking about war, you know wardrobe so <laughs> so anyway that's me um where I probably would have dieted maybe like weeks to get into shape and yeah. me and then but then yeah no the stunt woman Took the hit. Oh wow! And she was she was blown up. Is this the the that you had heard? She was no, actually, I hadn't. yeah. She was this tiny little uh, valley backyard pool, kind of a little small thing. And they set the charge, and and something happened where the they put the charge before she actually jumped, so it blew her off the diving board and she flipped and she thank god she landed in the pool i think she broke her foot or something but if you watch it that is a that is a woman being blown up off a diving oh board my god. and Were not doing this stuff yeah legal repercussions after that no Just because uh, i was right there wherever i was watching it uh-huh. and uh the the stunt coordinator looks at it and uh goes throw an extra grand you know, it's just like, you know, it's a community. He goes, yeah. give them an extra grand. <laughs> How generous. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. In my research, I found that you have uh, two wonderful stores. Jeanette's Bras, right? Jeanette Bras. Jeanette yes. Bras, sorry. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, uh, they're, yeah, they're bra fit boutiques. Tell us all about this. Ah. Um, well, our 
my uh, the slogan is the alphabet starts at D. <laughs> And uh, it's a bra fit boutique, and it's just for ladies that start at a D cup uh-huh. and go up from there. And it's a traditional bra fitting. You go in and like it was, you know, bend over, darling. <laughs> you know, that's that was for those old enough to remember that. You know, there used to be a real lady who was there, you know, who, who fits you and did that. And, and we still do that. You know, we um, that's that's what it is. And we just do. There was like a, a niche. A hole in the market, a very large, round-shaped <laughs> hole, um, where, you know, it's not plus size. You know, people say it's not plus size. Um, it's it's uh, women. It's called full cup. And it's women who are have a small rib cage and a larger bus size, kind of hourglass, as you would call it, uh-huh. and um, or Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Your call. Or black. Dealer's that's, choice. It's Yeah, it's actually – or African-American. That's, that's my – those are my gals. And, um, you know, so either either people would say, oh, you know, uh, fake boobs. No, no, not not that. Oh, you know, big, big, big gals, heavy gals. No, not that. This, you know, <laughs> pointing at myself, uh-huh. you know, like – and just – you couldn't – you just couldn't uh, – not, first of all, you couldn't find the the service of a of a person who really knew what they're doing, and then you couldn't find the product. And uh, actually, there's amazing lines in Europe, and I went to Europe and I saw all these great lines that are beautiful and they fit well. And I just started importing them, opened my store. So uh, crazy, that's crazy so, idea. No, it's a great idea. Fifty one percent of the population, and probably most of these people are walking around with, as you say. Uh, what did you call it? Mall bra syndrome, where it's just. Oh yeah, well it's you know like a well, we started a D, but it's actually it's it's a European D, so it's like an American C. Oh really? So okay. you know it's kind of if you need to wear a bra, what an amazing concept <laughs> <laughs> store for people who actually need to wear yeah. the bra. Um, it should fit. I mean, um, but yeah, no. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why the the bra industry. A lot of industries got kind of watered down, and I think it had to do with like. You know, self-serve, department stores, cheap, bring the price down, low-wage working, all that kind of do-it-yourself, you know, all that kind of the American where you kind of – and so they um, kind of watered it down, made the the product um, fit as few people, you know, a small amount of options for, you know, large amount of people to bring the cost down. And it just ended up where you think that, like, oh, yeah, $30 seems like it should work. Or, you know, a pair of shoes, you know, if you pay that, you know, well, it's going to hurt. They're not going to last very long. But And a bra is a really expensive, really high technical object. And they're gorgeous. I can imagine. I love this summation on your website. It says, so here I am rocking my Spanx and ready to impart a little old school wisdom. The only way to get an accurate measurement is to get fitted. Your mother knew this and so did your grandma. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and where are the stores located? I've got uh, the first one I opened uh, almost six years ago, and it's in East Hollywood uh-huh. on Melrose. And in this lovely bohemian neighborhood. Yeah, I know that neighborhood. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of weed. There's weed shops. There's a tattoo parlor. There's the – no, it's great. Um, and then the second one is in Old Pasadena. Uh-huh. And there's also a little great little uh, – little storefronts. I mean, the reason I opened them up in these kind of -of out-of-the-way neighborhoods is I really like the little shops next to them, like the idea of you have your tailor, you have your barber, you have your bra-fitting lady, you have your all those little shops. And then we're going to open a a third store on the west side as soon as we find a place. How wonderful. Where can they find that stuff online? Twitter account, right? Well, um, we don't sell online. um, Because you have to go in to get the right? This is a full-service experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. you know, there's 
It's great. Um, so, but the website is Jeanette Bras. It's J-E-N-E-T-T-E, no A. And that, yeah, use the website and you kind of read about it. And yeah, Twitter account, Jeanette Bras, Facebook, Instagram. Well, 51% of my listeners and the gents who want to buy for their women or get them a nice uh, service there, right? Uh, we, have, we have the man chair. Abs- I, know, I got- know that chair well. The man chair. Yeah. You have to have the man chair. It's yeah. got the vintage Playboys. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. No, it's a full-on. I can't. Yeah. Well, we'll be in. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, Jeanette, I can't thank you enough oh. for coming in here. It was so wonderful to talk to you. Thank it's you. It's been one of my favorites. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Jeanette. Well, my thanks once again to Jeanette Goldstein and Pablo, her son, for making a young colonial marine's dreams come true. And now, we're going to lay some controversy to rest. I'm very excited about this segment. One of the mics has a little bit of a buzz going on, and you can interpret that as a sound defect or just a mellow chill, you know what I'm saying? It's because I was doing a remote recording, and because sometimes life isn't perfect. But sit back, get your own mild buzz going on, and enjoy. I was there tune. Hey, let's talk about the music from the films we discussed today, specifically time signature. Most modern music, pop, and a lot of film scores written in 4-4 time signature. That's what the James Horner Titanic theme slash Celine Dion light some candles bath time cry it out version is in. Anyway, my great friend... My boon companion and returning guest to I Was There Tune, James Bladen, joins us now to count it out. James, how are you? I'm fine, man. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be back here on I Was There Tune. <laughs> You're doing the liquid you again. Yeah. You know how I, I am a big proponent and a booster of the liquid you. <laughs> I sense that you're against it. I don't know why. Well, when I was in uh, grad school, that's what a lot of people did to sound really Shakespearean, and it drove me kind of crazy. Right, but it has a practical use in today's language in that it can differentiate between tune and tune. Yeah, but you don't watch the evening news. I do. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On, written by James Horner. We're just going to use this as a basis for you to count out the 4-4 time signature before we get into some deep film score time signature controversy oh my relevant to this episode's films. Okay. So, James, okay. count out the 4-4 because you're a musical expert, genius, who uses a liquid you. Here we go. Two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And so on. It's very simple, correct? Very simple, yeah. And that's just what, uh, I don't know, works best with the human biological clock? (laughs) How does that work? Why is most music written in 4-4? I mean, I guess for some reason it lends itself very much to pop music, definitely. The biological clock, having babies, sex music. Right. I was going to say it with biological clock, you could break it down into sort of like a nine-month pregnancy, but that doesn't really work. Yeah, that's definitely Dave Brubeck is the nine-month gestation period music. Wait, are you talking about... Five, four? Uh, five, four. Five plus four is nine? We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. But yes, four, four, I think, um, although, you know, there was a lot of classical music and stuff written in three, four, you know. Um, well, that's funny you should mention that because that's oh. the next one we're coming to. Okay. Now, another widely used but slightly less common time signature is three, four, or waltz time, also known as its faster counterpart, six, eight, correct? 
Yes. That's yeah, just yeah. like a double time three, four. Well, yeah, you could say it's double time. Basically, let me just uh, Please, say I, what I know about time This is signatures. why I brought you in to record at your own house. Six, eight would be there are six eighth notes per bar. So, yes, you could technically, they're basically the same, but the feel is slightly different. Yes, and it's definitely a different feel from a four, four. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're going to give an example of that again from one of today's films. This is the theme from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It's written in 6-8. We're heading somewhere with this. James, tap it out. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one. So that was written by Brad Fidel, and uh, he adapted that from his own score from the first Terminator movie, which we'll get to in a second. But those are probably your two basic time signatures, right? A 4-4 four, four, and a 3-4. Those are the most common. Yeah. But if you wanted to get really weird hmm. and make a listener feel uncomfortable for a movie like Halloween, say, yes. the score written by John Carpenter, which is in 5-4, it would sound a little bit like this. James, tap it out. <laughs> Two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. Do, do we comment on that? Or you, you've no. got an agenda that no, you please. want to get to. If you want to say something, so, I can always cut it out. I would just say that <laughs> you were kind of alluding to the fact that you would use that to maybe make you feel uncomfortable because we're not as, it, it's, it's jarring to hear yeah, does an it feel like meter. it's getting ahead of you or you're getting ahead of it? With 5-4, to me, it feels like there's an extra, there is, there's an extra beat yeah. that's, you, you're expecting it to, to repeat and it doesn't, it keeps going. And I think it's, yeah, it makes sense to use that to put the viewer off balance and to make them feel uncomfortable. Like As if not. that movie doesn't do it enough. But, you know, another famous 5-4, besides uh, Take 5 by Dave Rubick, is uh, Mission Impossible is also 5-4. What? Ding, 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 ding. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, it's in five. Now, that one doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel Maybe like dramatic anxious. tension. Yeah. yeah. There's a bombs so about to go off. The fuse light Fuse lighting material. Yeah. And pumpkin lighting material. <laughs> Of course, to the opening of Halloween. Mm. Now, also in a strange time signature is Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells from the film The Exorcist. No, it's actually tubular. God damn it. <laughs> anyway, that's another film from uh, this podcast. In fact, it was last episode's guest was from The Exorcist. It is written in a 7-8 time signature. Mm. Jimmy Blades. Okay. Tap it out. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One. Jeez, I don't know. Is that no? Right? That sounds right to me. I think. But even if it isn't right, that's kind of the point, right? Is it's really making you feel uncomfortable. That it's I. Yeah, it doesn't even sound like it. A... It wasn't written for the film. It was just a piece of like prog, right? Rock, <laughs> prog bells. <laughs> Yeah, it, even more jarring or unsettling than 5-4, I think. I mean, unless you're really paying attention, you can't even hear where it's going to repeat. Yeah. However, Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill is also 7-8, and that doesn't seem jarring. That seems jaunty. Yeah, you know, if, I think if you if done correctly, those odd times don't feel like odd times. Like, you didn't notice that Mission Impossible was 5-4. Well, you don't know. I just didn't say anything. That's true. Now... The whole point I'm coming to here with this. Just when you thought it couldn't get any more jarring, let's go back in time through a Skynet electricity time ball to the first Terminator movie and its score 
also by the aforementioned Brad Fidel. You ready for this? Yeah. Count this out. You're not even telling me ahead of time what it is. No. Count it out. Is it five, two, three, four, five? No, I don't feel bad if you don't get this. Is it four and a half? <laughs> that would probably make more sense. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. Jeez, I don't know what it is. Well, I'll stop it right there and let you know that this is a bit of a trick question because mm. in some ways this isn't even written in a time signature. Can you explain that? <laughs> yes. Uh, this information comes to me from a great article from Slate.com by Seth Stevenson. He puts this time signature controversy to rest. For the most part, here's how it goes. According to the composer Fidel, quote, Terminator was very difficult because I was using many different synths and sequencers, and because I didn't have MIDI available on many of them, I had to sync them by hand. This is why the main theme is in a very odd time signature. The looping of the Prophet 10, which was a synthesizer. Are you familiar with that synthesizer? Mm -hmm, I knew you would be. Was just a little short of a complete measure. So apparently Fidel was working on music for a TV movie about Hitler's last days, and that later became the Terminator theme. It was originally born out of some improvisation, and he first set up a rhythm loop on his sweet Prophet 10 synth. The composition consisted of rhythmic banging of a frying pan looped under a synth melody. So, from Stevenson's article again, amid the throes of creation, what he hadn't quite noticed or hadn't bothered to notice was that his finger had been a split second off when it pressed the button to establish that rhythm loop. Being an old machine, there was no autocorrection, which meant the loop was in a profoundly herky-jerky time signature. Fidel just went with it. The beat seemed to be falling forward, and he liked its propulsiveness. He recorded the score that way, and not being classically trained, never wrote down any notation. The music he'd improvised went straight into the film. With its collaboration between fallible humanity and rigid machinedom, the score was especially well-suited to the material at hand. So... Hmm. Later down the road, here's where the story gets interesting, Henry Mancini wanted to record the score and asked for the written charts. Fidel enlisted the aid of his friend George Kahn to make the charts, and only then was it properly tapped out. The time signature is 13 sixteenths. <laughs> 3 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2. Huh. 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2. Ah, gotcha. Okay. okay let's try, I'll try that. that. It doesn't sound like that to me. It sounds like that bomb, bomb, bomb thing. One, two, three, four, one, one, two. It's, I swear it sounds like four and a half to me. Well, you may not be wrong because it doesn't end there. <laughs> Wait, there's more? Yes, there's more. According to someone called Synthhead at synthopia.com, <laughs> which I can only assume is a message board for people with actual synthesizer heads. And that's his Christian name. <laughs> <laughs> Fidel's and Stevenson's explanations, while interesting, don't really account for the continuing debate about the Terminator theme. Give it a closer listen, though, and you'll hear the theme presented two different ways. When it's initially introduced at about one minute and six seconds in the main theme, it seems to be in 13-4. The quarter note beats are grouped as 3 plus 3 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2, which is what George Kahn originally found out. Right. But the same theme is later restated at about 351 in the theme, 
over a driving 12-8 beat. In this second arrangement, the eighth notes are grouped as 3 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2. James, does any of this make sense? Are people just stupid? <laughs> what's, what's weird about it is, okay, I mean, this, the whole setup is that Mr. F- Fidel... Is that how you pronounce it? I really don't know. That's the first problem. What's his first name? Brad. When Brad wrote it, he was not there. This is all retroactively applied. Yeah, you can't. So it was like his very loose Prophet 10 being played that weird loop that was just obviously not in any time. So, I mean, and obviously there's different ways that you can analyze this stuff. You know, break it down into, like you said, three groups of three and then two of two. None of it can really uh, be accurate because it's not what he intended. It was just a mistake. And so you're kind of trying to retroanalyze it. This is exactly why I brought you on here. Because <laughs> Stevenson's article on Slate is great. Yeah. And even the synth head guy has a point. But I think they're missing the larger point, And that is, there is no time signature from this. Because it is all born from a good mistake, like a happy accident. Right. It's like when people put the Apollo 11 um, moon conspiracy onto The Shining. Or that James Bond... Um, is a code name that is given to different agents when the other one passes on or whatever. Right. These are things people are applying that were never intended. And the, it, it should just be said that the controversy is solved on this. There is no time signature. It's like John Lennon said. He was always talking about how people were, apl- were applying meaning to his lyrics. It just didn't exist. He just liked the sound of those words. And people were always looking for a deeper meaning and it just wasn't there. But it doesn't take away the art. No. Paul was never dead. He, that's right. In fact, he's probably going to be the only one who's not dead. That's the, the irony. the last one dead. I don't know. Ringo's so laid back, though. It's almost like he's kind of more sloth-like, so I feel like his metabolism is slower and he'll live longer. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? I sure do. He's not out there killing himself on stage like McCartney is. But you know what? I love the fact that this... That he did this thing and it was so ramshackle or so um, haphazard as to not be a perfectly timed thing. Because I like mistakes in music that I feel like we don't have that much anymore. I like imperfections because this goes along with my theory that human beings love imperfections. And the problem with is, is to, with today's technology is that we take all the imperfections out because it's easy. I think we like imperfections and, and to take them all out is sanitizing. You came for some music information, but you're leaving with some life lessons. James Bladen, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And Ringo Starr may be a sloth, but one time, he was an octopus. I can't believe you did that live. This is not added later, ladies. I truly did. This was live. I, I thought you just were doing your usual not pay attention to what I'm saying when you were looking down. What'd you say? <laughs> Son of a bitch. Well, that's it for today's I Was There Too. Vote for me on iTunes for best podcast by giving me a review. Uh, you know what I mean. Make it a one with a lot of stars and a lot of bars like the American flag we salute every day as we sign off midnight for podcast town been a good one if you can connect me personally with someone that would be a good guest for this show please email me at i was there pod at gmail.com you can also find me on twitter at matt gorley g-o-u-r-l-e-y 
That's it for today. My thanks to Jeanette Goldstein, Pablo Goldstein, and James Bladen. See you next time. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.